What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Welcome to Book Nook, where the Lorehounds your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is part one of our coverage of the fourth book of the Earthsea series, Tahanu by Ursula K. Le Guin. In this podcast, we'll be discussing chapters one through six. We will start off with some spoiler-free conversation about our thoughts on the book in general. Following a quick break, we will move into a deeper discussion about major themes presented, as well as discussing the main plot points followed by listener feedback. And while we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves, we do want to hear from you. Send us an email to book at thelorehounds.com or visit our webpage at thelorehounds.com slash contact. And there you can use the contact form or you can even leave us a voicemail. And lastly, we have a Discord server and we've got a channel all set up just for this conversation and pretty much any other shows and projects that we're covering. So join us there. If you're enjoying this or any of our other podcasts, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us amongst the many aisles of the podcasting seascape. Stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about everything else we're doing and our affiliates, Properly Howard, Movie Reviews, and Alicia over on the Wool Shift Dust Feed. Also consider subscribing to our Patreon. For as little as three bucks a month, you can get ad-free episodes and much, much more. Uh, Patreon is a great way to support us because ad revenues are fickle. David, Marilyn, we're back after a little bit of a break. We need Yay! Some time to mull over the first three books. Not as much time as Le Guin took, thankfully. We but. also needed some time to cover three shows simultaneously. So, But what a joy <laughs> it, it is to be summer. back on the Isle of Gaunt. It is. You know, yes, with the, our goats. By the hearth of Ogion. And uh, just, just, ready to, just ready to chat. Yes. Yes, indeed. So... Yeah. Well, I was gonna I was gonna pitch it to you. We should probably recap what we've done so far in the coverage of uh, the series, and then what our plans are going forward. Yeah. So we've covered the first three books, as I just alluded to: the A Wizard of Earthsea, the Tombs of Atuan, and the Farthest Shore. We're going twenty eight years in the publishing future now to go to Tihanu, which is the fourth book that was never meant to be. Right? Eliguin um, decided to revisit the series later. And uh, now we're revisiting it with her, revisiting this world. You can check out all the podcasts for the first three books on our website. Um, and I think we've committed now to covering Tales from Earthsea and the Other Wind. So we are going forward through the series as we go. Uh, Tahanu is probably going to be three podcasts because it's such a meaty work. Yes. And then we will be we'll, we'll discuss what we're going to do for the other two. We'll have fun. Sounds yeah. good. All right. General impressions. Who should go first? I'm first on the list, but I don't want to introduce myself. <laughs> <laughs> David? Yeah. I'm giving it to you. Okay. 
Uh, I will say that I, I am slow. This is a slow uh, start for me for this book. Uh, there are, I've seen a number of comments on our discord and some feedback emails and, uh, your reaction, John, and, and certainly Marilyn's everybody's like, Oh my gosh, this is so great and wonderful, whatever. And I am just not feeling the same old magic that I felt from the first three. Not that anything's wrong with that, but I'm just sort of, you know, comparing my experience where reading Ursi and plus, you know, I've got a nostalgia with those three books and I have less connection to the Tehanu book, which I remember reading in the nineties and not, uh, it not grabbing me, but then I could certainly say that I was looking to return to that world. Uh, especially, you know, when I first read those and the feelings that I got from, from it. So I thought, Oh, well, you know, some same, same old magic, but obviously Ursula K. Le Guin had, moved on into her feelings and her thoughts about a lot of things. And so it changed up her writing, but then reading it now and trying to have a, a, as an open perspective as I can and having aged and become a parent and <laughs> live my life, you know, having different sort of what I'm bringing to the work myself is being very different. The, that spark that I got from the first three books is still not really there. Not that it's it's that's a, a problem. I'm just not getting the same magical zazz that I do. There are two places in, I think, it, one in Chapter 4 and one in Chapter 5. I think when Ged shows up uh, on the dragon, there's some stuff. And in, in Chapter 5, uh, when uh, Tanar starts to feel something again, there's kind of a, I get a, a zazz in the writing. Um and there's, for me, I was just looking for, uh, in reflection of these first six chapters, I was looking for those really elegant ways that she would turn a phrase or describe the ocean or Ged flying as a pilgrim falcon over the, the, the sea and all these different things. And, and a lot of that was missing for me in, in this. And I didn't see a lot of that um, faceted writing that I really enjoyed in the first one. So maybe that's just it, that she's just writing with a different style and, and, and that is her purview. She's the author, right? That's, that's what it is. And I can, and I've always heard her voice speaking through some of the storylines and talking, you know, sharing some insights or perspectives on the world. And I can definitely hear it in this one. And she's making some very, pointed references to our primary world. I think about gender and about, you know, um, uh, men and women and how we've placed them in the world. I don't even think that she was thinking even in terms of non-binary at that time. So, you know, there's even, you know, more there, but at least from where she was at that point, which is interesting. And I'm, you know, and I'm not saying a pro or for that. I'm just saying, I just don't feel like the way that she wrote the first three and constructed the first three, I'm seeing that. It's the first six chapters, and I'm still kind of waiting for the book to start. I know that that's not the similar experience that other people have had. So I'm really interested to hear what I might be missing or what I'm not sort of cluing into. Because uh, I know people are like, whoa, this book, oh, it's amazing, oh, whatever. And I'm like, okay, where is it? I, I want that. <laughs> so Marilyn, tell him what he's missing. 
Well, you know, I feel this is the best book I've ever read, which delves wow. honestly into the issues of gender and power. Okay. And it is still recognizably in Earthsea. I, what I'm picking up from what you're saying there was it's, it's a lot more about ideas and concepts than it is about action. Mm-hmm. And the kind of action that happens is not the traditional action. And Le Guin talks about this in the afterword. She says, by the time I wrote this book, I needed to look at heroics from outside and underneath and the point of view of the people who are not included. The ones who can't do magic the ones who don't have shining staffs or swords. Women, kids, the poor, the old, the powerless. Ordinary people. My people. I didn't want to change Earthsea, but I needed to see what Earthsea looked like to us. Mm. So I think that's that's a... I, didn't ha- I don't have that perspective when I'm reading it. I'm reading it as the fourth book of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Right, not that she's spinning the camera around and giving us a point of view from other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you just pick up the book and you just start reading, and you're like, "Okay, what's going to happen next in the exciting world of Earthsea?" Right, you're right. in for a, a change of, of point of view here. Yeah, well, you'll get it. You'll definitely get it. Mm-hmm. But it is the the or the early section is sort of a meanwhile back at the ranch. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know, get an errander out there saving the world and so forth. Well, it wasn't just on the islands that they visited that magic was disappearing and bad things were happening and, you know, there was a hole in the world and all the life was being sucked out of it. We're seeing that same effect, but not from the point of view of heroes going around trying to fix it. Hmm. We're seeing what it looks like for people, as I say, at the ranch. Back and I'm not home. I'm not using the word mundane in a negative sense, but in a mundane in the sense of we're not riding around on the back of dragons here, <laughs> right? We're just walking down the road. I mean, somebody did not yet. Yeah, <laughs> the first chapters already. Right. I don't know what right. you're talking about. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, and um, she talks about the tradition, as John observed. This is roughly 20 years later. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting to note that this book came out the same year as Robert Bly's Iron John and the first book in the Wheel of Time series. And I have a lot of stuff to say about gender representation in there and how it reflects these particular texts. You started um, reading Wheel of Time, if I'm I not I have. Mistaken. I finished the first book. I'm starting on the second one. Okay. okay. Well, that's, that's a whole other podcast. That's the next book nook project. <laughs> right. We, we know that now. Fair enough. Um, Fair enough. <laughs> Unless, unless you really don't like it, Marilyn, I got to say, because I, I, I know there were some iffy moments for you in there. Well, you know, I, I, could, I could have made some edits and, and observations and whatnot, but uh, that wasn't what I was reading it for, fortunately. Does it help you to know that his wife was his editor? I don't think it makes any difference one way or the other, really. I, I just mean... Uh, Maybe that's, less that's critical, why, you think? I think that she let him keep more things in. That's what I think. That's Just because possible. she didn't want him to kill his darlings, you know? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Out of love, out of love, all out of love. Well, sure. Um, is it loving to not help your partner deliver the best possible writing? Oh, I'm sure. If, first of all, she's a legendary <laughs> editor. She edited a ton of huge science fiction and fantasy series before him. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that... People just like to joke because his books will meander for a long time. And they're like, she just didn't want to hurt him. <laughs> 
Well, that could be the case. I mean, I did think that, you know, the adventures of two of the main characters going from town to town to town to town and going through exactly the same routine, you know, finding the inn, Mm -hmm. signing up to play that night, having their dinner, sleeping in the barn, some horrible monster comes and scares them away and they move on as fast as they can to the next town, you know, rinse, Mm -hmm. repeat five times. You know, you could have given yeah. it to us once, yeah. and then yeah. something along the lines of, you know, three times this happened to it's them. Crazy that it just keeps happening. Right. Yeah, right. isn't that interesting? Right. And eventually, I figured out what he was trying to do with that. You know, he was trying to give us a hint that mm-hmm. there was a reason why they kept getting found so quickly. But it, yeah, it was pretty. I don't know. I I didn't get it anyway. So maybe I'm dense. But anyway, but what David was saying about the writing itself, um. Again, she has something to say about this in that wonderful essay, Earthsea Revision. The tradition I was writing in was a great one, a strong one. The beauty of your tradition is that it carries you. It flies and you write it. Indeed, it's hard not to let it carry you. It's older and bigger and wiser than you are. It frames your thinking and puts winged words in your mouth. If you refuse to ride, you have to stumble along on your own two feet. If you try to speak your own wisdom, you lose that wonderful fluency. You feel like a foreigner in your own country, amazed and troubled by the things you see, not sure of the way, not able to speak with authority. It is difficult for a woman to speak or write with authority unless she remains within a traditional role, since authority is still granted and withheld by the institutions and traditions of men. A woman is queen, or prime minister may for a time fill a man's role. That changes nothing. Authority is male. It is a fact. My fantasy dutifully reported the fact. But is that all that fantasy does? Report facts? So I suspect that may be part of what you were seeing. She talked a lot about how difficult this book was for her Mm -hmm. and how she literally had to write it out of doors. Mm -hmm. And that she really didn't understand where it was going. Okay. Um, so she's she's breaking boundaries here. She's right. taking an ancient form and saying, "Yeah, okay, let's take this form and let's look at it." You know, from underneath. She actually right. uses that. You know, from upside down, which is unfortunate that it should be quote unquote upside down. But at that time, that's what it was. I think you know it's it's one of those things because. That if it, if having known some of that, I guess going into reading this book, having that understanding that there's a perspective shift happening here, that she's all she's trying to do something, she's trying to break something out of something, change something, alter it. Um, whereas the first three books were rooted in a tradition and of the. Right. I, I can't pronounce the word, the Bill Dungers, the, the coming Bill of age. Roman. Yes, that's the, that's the one. Um, that those books were very much rooted in that. And she, her, her writing skill within that was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. The way that she could turn a phrase, the way that she could write a really short sentence and you would have this entire world point of view and perspective. You could smell the salt air and feel the wind on your face in 20 words or less. Right. Whereas if she's trying to, where she's, she's altering, she's turning the wheel in a really big way here. 
then having, if I know that going in, then I can shift my perspective to be with her in that as mm-hmm. opposed to trying to come to her with a perspective of, Hey, where's my get? And where's my, you know, mm-hmm. where's my look far? <laughs> and why aren't you, why, you know, why isn't all this great stuff happening? You know, mm-hmm. if, if I can set that aside and knowing that this is an entirely different style of, of work for her. Okay. Granted. And part of it, I think is because we're not as familiar generally with the territory that she's describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's the territory of a widow working on a farm, um, taking care of a horribly abused child. Yeah, you know those and are not learn, the stuff of fantasy, right? We should we <laughs> should try be careful not to spoil too much. <laughs> on, sure. And, well, on this front side, so we got this. Well, that's true. Yeah. Chapter two is is being spoiled. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> Apologies. Not, we're just just out just an outline of it. It's not yeah. uh, no details. Yeah. yeah. So another thing she commented on was that. Quote, some readers who identified with Ged as a male power figure thought I'd betrayed and degraded him in some sort of feminist spasm of revenge. <laughs> so far as I know, I had no spasms and didn't betray Ged. Quite the opposite, I think. In Tahano, he can become finally fully a man. And I guess I can't read the rest of this just now, but we'll have to come back to it. Um, although there is... One sentence here. Is the magic, in fact, dying out of Ursi as it seemed was happening in the third book? I don't think that's the case, but certainly there's a great change taking place in the world, only just beginning to be visible and not yet comprehensible. Mm. And it wasn't even comprehensible to her entirely right. with this first book. And another comment she has, uh, it's not surprising that Tahanu was labeled feminist, but the word is used so variously that it's worse than useless. If you see feminism as vindictive prejudice against men, the label lets you dismiss the book unread. If you see feminism as a belief in superior properties unique to women and expect the book to confirm that belief, you'll find it equivocal. And Hmm. I also want to present a concept which I'll be referring to throughout discussion, which may not be familiar anymore, but it was very central in discussions of gender in the 1990s and on is essentialism versus constructionism. You may recognize this from Carol Gilligan's lectures, John. This is two ways of looking at the concept of gender. Right. Essentialism says that gender is based upon your essential biology. It is the Mm -hmm. essence of you. That is what gender is. Constructionism says gender is a thing which is created, it's constructed by societies. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you may believe that because of your biology, you have certain abilities and traits and characteristics, and it's biological. Or in constructionism, you believe I have these traits because this is what my society told me that my gender is and does. And right, believes. right. Carol Gilligan talks a lot about initiation and mm. how society will initiate you into your gender. They will basically give you a crash course on it when you get certain thresholds of age. And the idea that gender is always being performed. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's not an actual tangible thing. You can't find it anywhere. And I'll say that when we see in book two, Tenar really got an initiation pretty officially, right? (laughs) She sure did. 
Um, and it and it's interesting to see if we'll revisit some of those ideas in this book. And finally, I'll just say that Le Guin's working title for this book was Better Late Than Never. <laughs> <laughs> when we, we definitely will, I guess, when we get to the other side of the spoiler break, there are clear passages where she is outlining gender conversations yes. about uh, men and women in the world and, and especially men of power uh, and the things that interest them and don't interest them. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, I mean, it's, it's clear that she is taking a different tack, uh, with this book and, and, and definitely starting it off in a different way. So for mm -hmm. sure. Well, it's time for me to give my thoughts. Yes. yes and I loved it. <laughs> I, I loved it more than the first three books. Wow. I yeah. thought, so the first three books, I liked them. There were times where the dating, the dated nature of a lot of the language and the style did take me out of it sometimes. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. it did feel like I am, you know, at some points I'm like, am I reading this for school? You know, it's a, it's that kind of feeling. Huh. Really? Um, whereas this, I felt this was very modern. This was very character focused, which is the kind of writing I like. Uh, and this was a breath of fresh air in this world, honestly. And I wonder if part of that is that I was listening to the audiobooks for the last book and this book, and it switched from Robert Ingalls to a female narrator. Let me let me pull up her name quick. Interesting. It is drumroll, please. Jenny <laughs> Sterling. And she's doing a fantastic job really portraying the main character who I can't name. <laughs> but, <laughs> Yet. <laughs> right, right. But it just feels like, I think that's why it's less of a jarring transition for me, is that the voice changed. The, the actual voice that's reading me the story changed. I feel like I'm being, I'm looking at this world through a different set of eyes. Wow. So, wow. <clears throat> did you did you read the first three, or did you listen to the, all, for all? First I read three? the first one. I read half of the second one, and then I did audio for the rest. Half the okay, interesting, huh. interesting. Because for me, and I have to I have to call out my own nostalgia, right? Because I have I have deep nostalgia for for these books. But reading reading her words as written as opposed to having them spoken. And I haven't listened to any of the audiobooks. for me. That's some of the magic of her writing is that she's an intricate jeweler with words and she's mm -hmm. creating these incredibly ornate pieces yet. They're so simple. They're, they're incredibly difficult to craft. Simplicity is hard, right? To, to get that kind of uh, yes, simplicity in, in, in writing and in written words. Mm -hmm. and, and some of her sentence structures and descriptions of things are so intricate, but so simple that they're, that's, that's one of the things that. Yeah. In, it's, in, it's like Vonnegut and Pratchett in that mm -hmm. kind of way, right? They can really cut to the core of something in a sentence. Yeah. And that for me is one of the things that I love, love, love about the first three books where in this book, yeah, very. <laughs> this is these are longer descriptions, slower pacing. They're it's broader in a sense. The the there isn't a, a density. It's not like a neutron star that's like super dense here. This is pastoral and open, and you can sure 
You sure. know, she she takes chapters. Uh, how I mean, Tehanu is two to three times the length of of one of the first three books. I think I don't mm-hmm. know what the mm-hmm. actual. Um, yeah, I, I I think part of it is that this character who is the narrator has never slowed down to think about herself in her entire life. And this is the first time she gets to do that. Mm-hmm. She's just had a change in identity that again, I cannot reveal till after the spoiler. Right. Section. To, to, yes. And yeah. that is what causes a, a, it's sort of an inflection point in her life that mm-hmm. mirrors Le Guin, that mm-hmm. mirrors Le Guin deciding to reflect on what she's done and said. Mm, okay. And that's super interesting to me. I also think that, honestly, Marilyn, I will credit with giving me an open mind going into this book, because since we started this series, Marilyn's been saying Tahanu is a reimagining of it, and it's a a reflection of it, and it's trying to say something new about the same world. Uh And that made me go in expecting that and not expecting a repeat of of the trilogy. Right, right. So anyway, I really liked it. That's <laughs> my main point. I really liked it. <laughs> the it's, upshot it's, is <laughs> it's um it I get like I said, it's more character focused, I think, than the first three. I think the yes. first three are focused on big ideas. This one goes in for a character study, and that's the kind of writing I like. I mean, I like both, but I like when it's more focused on the characters. Um, I think that, like I said, it really mirrors Le Guin herself. It brings back the hits, but it doesn't linger on them too much. Right. It's sort of mm. like it's sort of like when The Office brought back Michael Scott for the finale. You know, he had two lines. <laughs> you don't you don't need him to have a lot. Let's focus on the new characters. Have you run far ahead, John, or are you just up to six? I I think I went through chapter eight and then I stopped myself so that I could just, mm. you know, <laughs> um, and then when I was outlining this, I had to remember where six ended and that was hard. But I think yeah. I did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't want to stop. I just right. I just wanted to make sure I was pure cool. for this section. All right. Well, I'm 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 interested to read beyond. I haven't read beyond six, so I'm I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> All right. Let's let let me let me shift my perspective here. Let me uh, <laughs> move myself into another frame of reference. Well, speaking of shifting perspectives, I think it's time we take a quick break, and when we get back, we will get into spoilers. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And we're back. All right. I'm going to give a quick synopsis, and then we will discuss the chapters I broke it up into two things, but I think I'm just going to read it all at once because it's not its not all that many events that happen in these first six chapters. At the time of the farthest shore, a woman named Goha recently lost her husband, Flint, on the island of Gaunt. She takes in a young girl who has been severely burned and gives her the name Theru. Learning that Ogian has sick, Goha takes Theru to see him. There, he calls Goha Tenar and... Uh, tells her to teach Theru. Goha takes Ogian to the forest path to die, but not before he reveals his true name to be Ihal. The wizards arrive too late to learn his name and are reluctant to believe Tenar uh, when she gives it to them. Tenar then settles in Ogian's house. Making a life for herself in Ogian's house, 
Tenar begins to get Theru to open up. After telling her dragons don't come to Gaunt, a dragon comes to Gaunt, bearing Ged on its back. Ged is initially unconscious, but eventually comes to. When he begins recovering, he reveals he can no longer use his magic. Well, not again, not a lot happens, but then when I read it, it does sound like a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really chapter... I mean, it's it's until chapter four and five where things start to pick up, right? That's when I started, well, I guess chapter three, but, you know, Ogeon's passing. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's an interesting pacing. And I'm not saying, you know, negative. It's just a different kind of pacing, right? It doesn't feel like we're mm-hmm. building the same way. We're building a same a, a familiar narrative structure. structure. Yeah, I, I mean, the inciting event I see as happening before the beginning of the book even, which is Goha loses her husband Flint and becomes uh, Flint's widow. She calls herself Flint's widow a lot yes, uh, rather than by her own name, which is setting us up for the image she has of herself as accessory to man rather than her own individuality. Right. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, she is all of the selves that she ever has been. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's one really beautiful section in the book. I don't have that one right in front of me, so I can't quote it word for word. But basically saying the child, Arha, did not have to die or be sacrificed. Mm-hmm. And that was not how it worked, that she is still there. You know, she thinks in Kargish, and she will be of great help to, to, to uh, Tanar as things go along. And then she is Tanar. She was called Tanar by Ged and by Ogin. And then she makes her enormous decision to leave the world of mages and magic and move to the woman's side of the house, as Le Guin puts it. She chooses mm-hmm. not to exercise the power of men, but to live a woman's life. And she is very successful at it. I mean, she lived with women all her life, but in a very, very different context. And so she learns um, the skills and the powers that are granted to women. And in doing that, she wins a place in her village, even though, let us never forget this. She is of a different... She is a white-skinned woman in a brown-skinned culture. Right. And Le Guin doesn't remind us of that very often. But Mm -mm. when she does, it is very pointed in that one line about, you know, the men looking at her and thinking, oh, well, Flint was pretty successful after all. She's a good woman. She does what she's supposed to do. You know, she breeds and she bakes and she cleans and probably mucks out the stalls if they have cows and so forth. And then that question, you know, I wonder, I wonder what she looks like on, you know, underneath. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it was a white woman white all the way through. Right. Which to my mind is just an absolutely chilling line. Right. I, I can't overemphasize the effect that that has. Mm. And just in that one line, she is revealing the woman's experience of what has been called the male gaze. Yeah. Right. Right. And right. it's painfully familiar mm-hmm. to, to any woman, I think. Right. And, and you even have her veracity questioned when oh, the wizards yeah. come and they go, 
What you give you your you his name? That's not that's not a thing. Oh, it's just a shame he died without a name. She's like, his name is I Hall, like shouting from the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do I have to repeat it to you? Did mm-hmm. you not hear me the first time? Mm-hmm. And then she says, "This is a bad time mm. when mm-hmm. names can be spoken and completely forgotten." Mm. Um, yeah, because she has been completely disrespected. Auntie Moss, even worse, of course. You know, the the young mage from um, the big house takes one look at her and sees an old widow and that's all he sees and is, you know, not even listening to her. At least the wizard from the village had some recollection of her, you know, when she first came and and then left Ogian and, you know, moved to the other side of the island and to the other side of the house, as it were. So he's a little less offensive, but... Not, not a whole lot. When we get another, to, to stay on this topic, um, is this chilling encounter on the road when they're yes. walking to Ogion's and she has to sort of puff up kind of like a porcupine and display some quills and mm-hmm. make some rattle sounds to, to scare these guys off. But if she hadn't been quick-witted uh, in that way, you know what what might have happened f- for them on the on the roadside is a chilling thought and um yes. you know I, I i was as as i was reading that passage i was thinking okay wh- like okay get out of this scene <laughs> like run do you know she Le Guin really had me nervous for a second that she mm-hmm. you know that something might something awful might happen here and i realized the dynamics have changed particularly in recent years but I think she is thinking of a time when a man wouldn't think twice of walking alone on a country road Mm -hmm. and a woman could never afford not to think about it. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it depends where you live now. Right. I think, um, you know, to some some degree, in some some areas you do have to, even as a man, think about exactly to walk. But most, I think most areas in America, which is the area I'm most familiar in, um, you know, it's it, it's mostly women who fear walking mm-hmm. alone at night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so again, Le Guin is enacting the don't tell show. Mm-hmm. And for any people who have had that kind of experience, the message just zings right into your gut. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. You even have, I mean, Ogian. Ogian is truly a hero. I mean, he, he perceives it all. Yes. Yes. And he goes to Tenar, teach her not broke mm-hmm. and the way he says that it just I, I again i did the audiobook but i i i felt the italics in the pronunciation <laughs> in the enunciation of the the uh the, the narrator and really like ogian i think ogian has started to question the wisdom of the council of wizards you know in his old age not mm-hmm. not to say that he didn't already because even at the beginning he's like ged i could teach you better here right but if you need to go to Roke, then you go to Roke. And even here, he goes, you know, the, she's not going to be able to do anything at Roke. Roke's not the place for her. But you can teach her to be great, I think. He's a solitary. And by taking himself out of the usual spaces and places, he is able to see things with new eyes. It's interesting because we talked about this in Silmarillion stories with... Um, Morgoth being cast out. Uh, I recently watched a movie called The Witch, mm. um, where here's a, you know a family being cast out, 
And there's, it was in a couple of other, it's been in a couple of other things too, uh, that we've recently talked about or, or watched about this idea that when you're outside of your community, you're, you're sort of lost in this wilderness and you don't mm-hmm. have mm-hmm. the things to keep you sane or to keep you fed or to keep you safe. Um, and you're dangerous. And, and then, yeah, then on the flip side, yeah, you are, you're a danger to the society, the, to the body as a whole. But yet here is Ogion, who is outside of this in a way, but yet that he doesn't suffer that same, um, uh, uh, you know, there's not that same negativity for, for his life of solitude. Well, two things. First of all, that image of the solitary person in the wilderness being dangerous is mm-hmm. largely a Western Christian construct. Okay. Unless you have the authority of the church behind you to be a solitary. Mm-hmm you will be viewed with suspicion okay? because the wilderness is dangerous. And that's where, you know, Gawain in the green Knight. that's where the green Knight lives mm-hmm. out in these risky wild places. It's mm-hmm. not quote unquote civilized where morality is in question. Exactly. Where there and is nothing at risk. There's nothing keeping your worse nature in check. Exactly. Right. Whereas, Cause we're, we're with the Western. Sorry, just to take, sure. I'm just trying, trying to, to take the thought a little bit further if we're sort of going with an original sin concept here, mm. you need something to keep you in check. Mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. you don't have a boundary, if you don't have a so- so- sociological structure, a gender gendered structure, mm-hmm. then whatever that is that is wicked within you will mm-hmm. run wild. Right? Oh, sure. If- Relationship really helped Adam there in the, in the Garden <laughs> of Eden. <laughs> well, and that's why, you know, witches like Auntie Moss are, are viewed with such huge suspicion because they mm-hmm. live alone. And are all often known for being sexual without any kind of, you know, coupling or, or right without procreation blessing. and yeah. But Ogian yeah. comes from the Eastern tradition, right, of the wandering sage, where you can be an aesthetic. And- you can be an aesthetic. You can wander alone freely. You can observe. You can come be a part. But if you remember from the very first book, when Ged and Ogian are walking from Ogian's house down to the harbor. And they come to the gates of the city. Mm-hmm. The guards in their armor with their swords and their spears kneel down to Ogian. Mm, I forgot that. Because they recognize him as the one who stopped the earthquake. Right. Right. So it is a very different flavor there. Right. Interesting. Cool. Well, I'm very excited to see where it goes with this because, I mean, Ogian's gone and that was tragic and... I think it's time for Ged to take his place, right? I think that's he's he's gonna move into the into the uh, <laughs> the house and be the solitary right now. I I would love that because it would be so symmetrical of this kid right. Who, but that's symmetry, right? That's yeah, mirroring. Mm-hmm. It would be this kid who resisted, you mm-hmm. know, staying on this on this little place, and then he's he's finally there, and he's just gonna be alone forever. But just remember, the last practically the last thing Ogian said before he died was all changed yeah it's all changed right so keep that in mind Mm. so can we dovetail that then into the conversation that tenar has with auntie moss and there's this almost this point where auntie moss is getting agitated and sort of you know, she's talking some stuff. I, I, it was a really hard passage for me. I, the, I couldn't read it in a single setting and I, and I was kind of distracted, but there was something going on there with auntie Moss and she was going through and back 
she was going through something and then coming back to something. And then at some point, Tanar has this, well, I guess that's after she gets a, a feeling of hope after Ged has come back. But it, what was that conversation that Auntie Moss was going through herself? Was well, there that the were, loss of power? There were a couple conversations. Were there <clears> splitting <throat> reads? Okay, that's what I thought. That's yeah. exactly what I thought. They would, the conversation had started about um, what, what's, uh, you know, I think she actually, Tanar actually says, what's wrong with men? Right. <laughs> Very cautiously. And Auntie Moss says, well, they're like a walnut. They're all full of that man meat <laughs> inside yeah. the shell of the walnut. But if you crack it, that's it. Or another image she uses is man's power is like a tall pine tree. And it's tall and it stands there in all its glory, but it can be knocked over in a wind or, or fire or whatever. Whereas women's power, and this is where she starts getting very mystical, women's power is like a blackberry bush, like a bramble. It's, it's just a little power. Mm-hmm but it stays and it mm. spreads and it can take over your garden <laughs> and its roots are strong enough mm. to keep the earth mm. from eroding. Mm-hmm. And you can't ever entirely eradicate a bramble. Anybody who's ever gardened and found wild rose in their <laughs> garden will tell you, 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 the best you can hope for is you uproot each one as it comes up. Mm-hmm. And so she then goes into that mystical you know, I have roots that go deep. I go deeper yeah. than the mountains. And who will ask what is a woman's power or a woman, you know, a woman of power and so on and so on. It's almost like she went into a trance state for a, mo- a minute. Yeah. Yeah. And she ends with the question, who will ask the dark its name? Mm. And Tanar says, I will. I have lived long enough in the dark. Yeah. And Le Guin has a comment about that whole conversation. She says, an awful lot of women really love Auntie Moss's mystical description of a woman's power. That is very essentialist. Mm-hmm. What I was saying before, you know, for Auntie Moss, the essence of woman, there is an essence of woman and she's steeped in it. And it has nothing to do with, you know, what the male dominant structure has done to her. Although that gets somewhat examined later on. Whereas for Tanar, She's just not into that. Mm-hmm. And Le Guin says that she was kind of surprised that so many women were all, all over Auntie Moss in her statement and completely ignored Tanar's statement, which was a very potent statement. Mm-hmm. I will ask the name of the dark. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. Mm. It's a different kind of power. Right. And it's fitting that that Tanar would ask that because she was eaten, right? She wasn't an, an eaten supposedly. One. Yeah, she was the priestess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which and a little later on, there's an observation that mm-hmm. you know, and within Tanar's ruminating and thinking about this, as she got to know Antimas better, she realized that a lot of her her mumbling and, and cant and so forth is simply because nobody ever sat down and taught her anything distinctions yeah how to how to think sequentially and 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 Mm -hmm. you know how to raise a point and so a lot of her perceived power depend upon obscurity Mm -hmm. and being mysterious right you know a lot of the village people who would come to her for charms or whatever wouldn't expect her to say 
well, let's see now. I can examine your situation and I see that you're having a hard time with, you know, that's not what they wanted. They wanted that other kind of magic. Right. That was perceived to be located in women as opposed to the mages and the wizards and so but forth. But then there's a performative aspect to that too. Of course there because is. Because when I walk into a medical professional's office and somebody is wearing a lab coat and has a stethoscope mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. their their shoulders, I am initiated into responding to them, what they say, the authority of what they say, right? you know, by culture. Whereas if I go into the local village um, uh, magic user and it's a witch and she's got herbs and things hanging from then it's dark and smoky in there and I want a love potion or I want to find my goat or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I need to have that mysticism or that myst- that, that otherness mm-hmm. to it because it, otherwise it doesn't make sense. Right. The, mm-hmm. Even though in, in, in Earthsea it is a, is a world of, of magic. It is, it is, it's, you know, uh, all the way deep down to its roots, all the way up. It's, right. it's a magical place. Right. You still want that performative aspect of uh, the the village witch is kind of mm-hmm. out there a little bit. And if she's not a little bit out there, then I'm not sure that I understand the cultural. Is she archetype. powerful enough? Right. I mean, it, you, let's face it: problem solving is something that you know farmers and and herders and shopkeepers and all the other people are gifted at. Mm. If they have a problem they can't handle, maybe they might go to an older farmer for suggestions or advice, or whatever. But ultimately, it's outside their knowledge and their skill set. So they're going to go to somebody who they perceive to have a different kind of knowledge than they do. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a white lab coat or a, or a dark den full of awful smells and herbs hanging from the ceiling. Right. So later, uh, this conversation, I mean, sticking with the gender issue stuff, this whole idea of women's work versus men's work. Later, she, when she's talking to Ged, she says, will you be about the house? She asked him across the distance. There was a sleep. I want to walk a little. Yes, go on, he said. And she went on, pondering the indifference of a man towards the, ex, 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 I can't say the word. Ex, Exigencies. Thank you. <laughs> that Sometimes I get tongue-tied. That ruled a woman that someone must not be far from a sleeping child, that one's freedom meant another's unfreedom unless some ever unchanging moving balance were reached. So in my particular experience um, as a father, I have had to, not had to, I don't want to say it that way, um, within our family dynamic and some of the decisions that we made as a family was that I would, for a period of time, take on uh, a, a, a large degree of the child care. Um, and then um, I was sort of the flex parent, if you will, you know, while my spouse, who's a woman, um, was had sort of the main job, right, that had the, you know, good salary and the benefits and stuff. And so I can say for a short period of time, <laughs> um, I could experience that of, Boy, I have I don't have freedom while I have this child as my dependent who who you know whose life and existence depends on me and my mm-hmm. whole world and daily structure is around them. My time mm-hmm. is not mine, it is it is theirs. Now our child is 8 and it's a different thing altogether and you know they can you know do so much more. But yet still 
you know, there is this, that is my world. That is our world as a family is dependent on, and and we live in obviously in a, in a different time, but this line of that someone must not be far from a sleeping child, that one's freedom meant another's unfreedom. That, that really hit me yeah. pretty hard, not hard in a bad way, but it was like, right. that was a, wow, that was a, a powerful statement. It was an aha moment. Yeah. And remember, Ogian observed the same thing within half an hour of her arriving with Theru. Mm-hmm. He says, never one thing for you. Because mm. she he wants to be able to spend all of her time with Ogian. Theru needs attention. Yeah. So she manages to work it out with Auntie Moss and, and um, you know, the other women who are around that they will take Theru for the day and care for her so that she can devote all of her time and attention to her dying friend. Right. And he spots it and he names it, Mm. which is another thing that makes him unusual. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Do you think it's the fact that he and Ged split the, quote, women's work that made him more conscious of these things? I do. I do. And there's that wonderful observation later on mm-hmm. when Ged does return. These guys that live like bachelors. And he's hanging around yeah. the house and they're eating a meal. And without any comment or whatever, he gets up, he picks up the dishes and he carries them over to the sink. And this is interesting to Tanar. <laughs> no man that she knows would ever have done this. In right. fact, and I love that line. She thought it would be a shame if his dignity hung by a dishcloth. Yeah. So there's a there's a classic Ursula K. Le Guin sentence right there. Yeah, right. Kind of a dig, right? Uh, I mean, not a dig at Ged, but a dig at manhood ungaunt, right. which is these people mm-hmm. think that their dignity is threatened if they pick up a dishcloth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas John and I have probably changed more diapers than our fathers ever saw. I, I oh, yeah. Your father, uh, oh, John, yeah. but I can certainly say I don't think my father, you know, he might have been my around. My dad changed it, but, some, but certainly yeah, not a lot. <laughs> not like we did. <laughs> and yeah, not to say we're no. any great thing. We're just saying that things no, have we're shifted. we're normal. We're yes. normal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so think about Ogian's dying words all changed. Mm. And think about Ursula K. Le Guin writing in the late 80s. Uh-huh. These second wave ideas are just beginning to percolate out into the wider. Yeah, nineties. Yeah, because it really hits in the nineties, doesn't it? With that, it really does. Yeah. As I said, with all of those books coming out mm. and, and people really starting to come to grips with, okay, mm-hmm. what do we got here? Um, and you know, a lot of silly stuff got said in the process, but you kind of have to work it through. We're talking thirty years later now. Mm-hmm. So it's no wonder that it took her a while to figure out, all right, what is this great change mm-hmm. in Earthsea? It has to do with magic initially. Um, what is it going to be? And that's what John was mentioning. That's when Tanar begins to get excited. You know, and think about what is the change? She has the dream of flying in the light and, and there's a sense of it which is wonderful, but then you have to bring it down to earth and realize it and make it real. And that's where the hard work begins. Mm -hmm. And then to do even harder work, which is to take on a child who is not of your 
kin, not yours or your kin, and who has suffered some serious trauma. Right. I, th- I think the trauma is the biggest part of it is, is mm-hmm. she gets through in a state of physical damage for sure, but emotional damage, I think, even yes. more. Definitely. This lack of trust for any adult. I mean, clearly whoever did this to her was someone she was close to. This was someone she knew. This was not someone who oh, was yeah. a stranger. Well, and there's description of it in chapter six, isn't it? About how she was used and left in the fire, but not right. But they didn't have the courtesy to kill her. They didn't finish the job. Yeah, right. which was a in, in which is like yeah, that was just an interesting way that she phrased that. I was I really stumbled mm-hmm. over that. Mm-hmm. When in the very first chapter, when we first, you know, Lark brings the child to mm-hmm. Tanar and hopes that Tanar can do some miracle or that she learns some magic from the priestesses, you know, again, turning desperate with a problem you can't solve to some other source that maybe has knowledge that you don't. And that's the first time we, we get the phrase, why do we do what we do? Mm. And it, pops up a number of times throughout the book. And I think it's interesting to keep that in mind and see at what points do these things come up Mm -hmm. when you're faced with an unthinkable situation and you still have to think about it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there was never enough time, but there was always the next thing to do. And again, that's perhaps more of a practical boots on the ground approach to life. It's like, all right, well, you know, we can think about the possibility of some mystical form of healing, but the kid's in pain and we've got a feeder and, oh, by the way, I have to take care of my sheep and, you know, the actual practical day to day. And how do you bring a child out of severe trauma mm. and teach her to trust adults when, the people who were supposed to protect her were right. the ones that damaged her mm-hmm. so horribly. Right. Did the opposite. I love and- the threshold moment where Tanar realizes that the Rue is beginning to heal when she mm. says, what if I plant a peach? Mm. Right. She, she right. decides to grow something that will happen that will bear fruit in the future. That is such a, big step for her. And that's what yes. I mean is, is David, I know you're saying that the language might not be as pithy as the first three, but I think the character beats are so jam packed. Sure. And, I think I, you know, I the, using, using a peach right. as the symbol of this recovery from trauma, I thought was beautiful and, and had the kind of density that we expect from Le Guin. I think I almost have to go back and reread uh, one through six with a different <laughs> framework to pick this stuff up because I, I'm going, okay, where is the, where's mm-hmm. the Zaz, right? Where is it? It's, it, this is a different, this is a different, all has changed. Yes. It's a right? different kind of Zaz. Yeah. But remember at the end of that first chapter, when she's first looking at this little girl struggling to breathe and she says to her in Kargish, I served them and I left them. Mm. I will not let them have you. Mm. So she does have knowledge of evil Mm. at a level that nobody else on Gaunt has with a few exceptions, possibly like wizards or Mm. other people. And that can become her strength. That can become her power, if you will. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not a power that is going to confront dragons or 
restore the, you know, plug the hole that some mud, bad magician left in the world. Right, right. It's a power that can heal a child who has been grievously right. hurt. Right, right. And I think when we go to an Eastern, you know, some of the, the points of view that we find in, in what we call Eastern, you know, in Eastern uh, religion and mythology, doesn't matter how big or small the the circumstance is, it's still the same. So exactly. Ged's, um, you know, and of course we get this in, we get a flavor of this in Star Wars with, you know, Yoda pulling the X-Wing up out of the swamp, right? And, and he's telling Luke, you know, sure. it doesn't matter how big it is. It's, it's still, you're just focusing your mind. Mm-hmm. Or when Ged is taking the longest journey of his life from the bed to the, you know, to the doorstep or wherever it was. Right. It's like in that moment, that is the biggest journey that he did. It didn't matter that he went to the dying, undying lands or to the dry lands and mm-hmm. came back, mm-hmm. flew on the back of a dragon, getting up out of that bed and walking across the room. In that moment, that's, those steps, were, were, were they any bigger or any smaller than anything else that he has done? What, what is it to, to compare those? It, you know, it's, And they're also the first steps. Mm-hmm of a very long journey and a challenging one. I wanted to be sure that we talked about that amazingly poignant and wonderful scene in which I don't remember. I think this is Tanar's narrative voice, but she's wondering if she should be concerned about the fascination that Auntie Moss seems to have for, for Theru and the reverse. And then she goes into this narrative about um, come into my house, dearie, and I'll show you something wonderful. And in the old fairy tales, it was the wicked witch who popped her into the oven or Mm -hmm. turned her into a stone or whatever. And instead, Auntie Moss is saying, come into the house and I'll show you something wonderful. And it's a new set of chickens or it's a beautiful flower in the meadow and mm-hmm. she ends that paragraph with saying, she, uh, Manti Moss didn't need to put her, burn her in the oven or turn her to stone or whatever. That had already been done to her. Mm. Mm-hmm. And every right. fairy tale you've ever read about children in the woods and the Wicked Witch, you know, suddenly that is turned on its head. Right. And a reality is shown that, again few people want to look at mm-hmm. or have seen. So I'm curious what they're, I, this is an open question. I certainly don't look, I'm not looking for an answer in, on this podcast because we're only <laughs> at chapter six. Um, but is, what is Tenar being, you know, what's, what's the arc that, that uh, Le Guin has for her? Cause she's suddenly mm-hmm. showing fascination with um, yeah. Ged and, you know, putting their staves next to each other, you know, in the, in the doorstep, we know all very sweet things that children Mm -hmm. do, but then Mm -hmm. when children lock in on something, you know, what is it that they're seeing? Mm -hmm. What is it they're resonating with? What is it that they're responding to? What is captivating their interest? And she's not putting that stuff in this story for no reason. (laughs) Right. Well, little hints when she first sees Ged and sees his scars. Right. And says to Tanar, was he burned? Mm. 
And the specific answer was no, but she understood what burned meant to Ferru. Right. Right. And right. Oh yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. He was burned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the thing with the sticks and whatever in the end of that section is, was a hero being born? Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm. Which is interesting. You know, I, uh, first of all, I think that this is the prequel to Harry Potter. She's going to found Hogwarts, but on a serious (laughs) note, on a serious note, I think that Le Guin is sort of revisiting her own role in patriarchy Mm. as a writer in the 1960s and 70s. And as Tenar looks back on her, on her priestess hood and her, and her, you know, journey through the tombs with Ged, I think Le Guin is thinking, was I unknowingly and unwillingly serving patriarchy with the way I was writing about women in that era, with the mm-hmm. way I was writing about the world in that era? And am I now going to tell a different tale and sort of let my voice free, just like Tanara is now? In Earthsea Revision, she has a wonderful comment on that. Um, she said when the book first came out, people would um, say different things about it and, you know, how it was bringing up these issues of Patrick and so forth. And uh, Vonda McIntyre, who was a friend of hers, called it doing penance. Mm. And Le Guin's response is um, unredeemably secular. I would say that it was, it was remedial civic action. She wasn't repentant for anything because she likes her books, but she is recognizing that they need some sure, um, yeah, yeah, revising, some clearing up. Yeah, and I'm not asking Tanar or Le Guin to repent. You know, it's more like, am I? I I think that what I'm saying is Tanar is finding her true self for the first time, mm-hmm. and Le Guin finally feels like she can sing as herself here, mm-hmm. whereas she was. Not that she wasn't herself back then, but I think that she recognizes that parts of herself were implanted by a system of oppression. The term she used was irredeemably secular. I would say it's affirmative action. That's what I couldn't remember. I want to I want to talk about that a little bit more, though, because if if we're we have to allow for process, though, don't we? We can say yeah. that that yeah. previous you know, oh, well, those, those, those assumptions were not good and they did harm and we need to, we're, we're trying to move on from them. And, and so, and it, it gets sticky in terms of somebody who, uh, you know, Le Guin isn't accused of abusing other people or using her power. Or, you know, I, I can think of, you know, no, no, no. We, we think of uh, 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 actors or I'm thinking of a particular comedian right now who was, uh, you know, America's dad, turns out he wasn't a really great guy. How do we place their art now in, in, in retrospectively? So we're not talking sort of at that level, but at the, at the level of somebody w- we're, we're moving on, we've got to have space and grace to allow movement to happen. Mm-hmm. Look, I I don't think that there's any culpability on Le Guin's part at all. What I'm trying to say is I I think a metaphor would be apt here. If she's an artist painting something, she's got her palette of 10 colors. Seven are from her own mind. 
three are from patriarchy, from society, implanted onto her, Mm -hmm. you know, without her Yeah, she's, yeah, exactly, yeah. She's now coming back. As we all inherit. Right, 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 exactly. Yeah. She's now coming back 18 years later and saying, I'm done with those three colors. Let me paint with what's from me. Mm -hmm. And perhaps she finds some new colors along the way. Right, and, yes. and and if this book is then her, uh, it, just like Tanar discovering herself, she's discovering herself. Right, but right. what is her true self? We don't know what what is our true selves. Essentialism, exactly, because we're multiple selves. Right, and she makes this point over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And in that uh, comment about you know deciding not to fly on her tradition anymore, mm-hmm. but getting off and walking. Mm-hmm. No, she's still bringing herself along, but it's harder. Right. It's a lot harder right. because the phrases and the concepts are not just there in the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. She right, has right, to right. really examine herself and her own experience. And let's not forget that Tanar chose to leave the masculine power. Mm-hmm. She chose to stop studying with Ogian. Right. She wanted to choose the woman's side of the house and some, you know, Le Guin describes it as she quit grad school. <laughs> and so did Le Guin. As a partner who's working on their PhD, I can certainly appreciate the desire right. sometimes to just quit. <laughs> right. But this is the point. Le Guin did exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. She was working on her PhD, but she quit grad school mm-hmm. to marry, to become a wife mm-hmm. and a mother mm-hmm. and to raise children. Right. So this is exactly what Tanar has done. Mm, interesting. And within the woman's sphere, she has found a new kind of power. Because she wasn't interested in the other kind. So when I was reading those parts about that too, I, I was in my mind, my mind, just thinking, well, gosh, it would be nice if you were a priestess that was isolated from all physical contact and you had to you were taken and and installed into this thing and you had to do all this really uh, foreign you know uh, rituals and you didn't have uh, a normal childhood upbringing gosh it sure would be nice just to have a quote unquote normal life for a period of time yeah and just settle into yourself into you know, to the essential parts of your physiology, you know, bearing children mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, doing some of those things be or herding goats or whatever it might be, but just at some point to live a quote unquote, uh, unheroic existence. A normative life. A normative when, life. When trauma becomes too much for us, our brains often resort to scripts and mm. scripts mm. are prescribed by society. Mm. Society right. in our world has been a patriarchy for thousands of years. Mm. And I think in Earthsea, it's safe to say it's pretty patriarchal as well. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) Tenar had this intense trauma where she had to be basically reborn with Ged, discovering her true name and freeing her from the tombs. And it's, it's easier in the short term to settle into the scripts, even if it may cause you more trauma down the line. Interesting. And that's why, mm. you know, there's there's a book by Carol Gilligan, I think I mentioned it last podcast. <laughs> uh, why does patriarchy persist? That's why, mm-hmm. is because yeah. it is much easier to tune out, to turn off and get into one of the scripts than it is to feel grief or anger or pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 And that's exactly what Tenar did. 
And I think this is true, and this is part of what we see, but there's a deeper message as well that it's not like she saw it as an either or. Mm. It's not like she saw it as she had to do it. She wanted it. She wanted to be a woman of power. in a particular right. frame. Right. She did not want to be an oddity in this world of masculist power and someone who would be fighting and so forth. And I mean, she still had her struggles on the woman's side of the house because she was white. She was a foreigner. She talked funny, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things, but those things proved to be surmountable and she received the approval of her community and with it gained a kind of freedom that she'd never had before. Hmm. And there were a lot of feminists who were very cross with Ursula Gwynn for mm -hmm. doing it this way. They wanted Tanar to take on the wizardly. Right. They wanted her to become right. the first woman wizard into Jen. And that's not the point, to my mind, and I think to Le Guin's mind, of changing the scripts. Mm. The point is not that's just a, flipping them. That's just and, a male, that's just a female occupying a male role. Exactly. Right. And that's there's gonna be some of time. Fabulous yes. conversations about this in the next section of the book. Mm -hmm. Some of the best that I've ever read. Um, right. The, the, you don't want to flip the script. You want to burn the script, right? You want to, you want to allow people to write their own script. That's it, John. You want to have the freedom to make your own choices and craft your own life. Mm -hmm. Which is hard. <laughs> it's incredibly hard. It's very difficult, mm -hmm. but it's very rewarding. Making non-traditional choices. Mm -hmm. I, I I think podcasting is non-traditional, or is it traditional now? <laughs> are you kidding? Do you know how many how many memes there are about? Oh, what yeah. do you do on a date? Oh, I'm a podcaster. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I don't tell people in my real life that I have a podcast. <laughs> I know. I I avoid it too because they all think we're Joe Rogan. Right. Right. <laughs> Or, oh, why aren't you covering this show? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or that show. I really like this show. I think this is a great show. You should cover it. Mm, okay. Yeah. I Look, so. I love covering as much as we can cover, but I, I uh, we got to save it for the heavy hitters. Yeah. <laughs> we also have a, yeah, we, we also labor within a particular system of. <laughs> a particular reality that that podcasting just being a free 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 love podcaster doesn't necessarily accommodate yeah the lifestyles we need to maintain yeah so. yep so david you had a couple of miscellaneous things on your list that i some of these i'm wanting to know more about what you wanted to say okay about them. call me out call me up what do invite you, got? you in yes invite <laughs> me in there's a yeah i like that's even better right What's uh, what's a what's one of them that you? Well, let's remind listeners of the callback to book one. Uh, okay, so it it was just in a quick line. Uh, I don't know if I could call up the reference when, or it's actually just sort of Tanar thinking, I guess, and just sort of this inner monologue stuff that you know, and she's talking about no one had come down from the mansion of Lord uh, uh, Ray Alby was less surprising. Lords of that house had never been on good terms with Ogion. Women of the house had been, so the village tales went, adept of dark arts. One had married a northern lord, they said, who buried her un alive under a stone. 
So that's uh, Sarette, who Ged had met in the fields when he was mm-hmm. uh, Ogion's protege or apprentice. And uh, then he meets her again on the island of Oskil at the court of uh, Terranon. And that's who he tries to flee the, the old ones with. Mm-hmm. That's his mm-hmm. first encounter with the old ones. Mm-hmm. So uh, just a, it was just a nice, I call, I, I put a note in there just because I, I, I was like, Oh, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and no, it was, was just that a was nice a little catch. bit of world building, you know, just the, the, the weaving of the world that she's doing here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it will come back again, which is why I wanted to be sure. Oh, I let it. Okay. Yes. That's good to know. Yes. Good to know. And of course we haven't talked about dragons. We have not we have to talk about dragons and that wonderful moment when Kalesin actually lands on the ledge with Ged on his back. Mm-hmm. And Tanar is there and she's, of course, quite taken aback. And the line is something to the effect of men were not supposed to look dragons in the eye, but what was that to her? A woman. <laughs> And so we have women looking a dragon in the eye and speaking to a dragon because she had enough of the old speech from her lessons right. with Ogian right. to be able to do that in a simple fashion. And Kalesan is impressed, I think. Uh, it, it made me think of um, Eowyn saying, I am no man. Right, uh, right. When she strikes the, the blow. Uh, against the, the uh, uh, what was the stupid thing called? The, the Witch King. The Witch King. The Witch King, thank you. Of Angmar. I've got so many How many worlds yes. can you have in your head at one time? I'll tell you who's got a lot of worlds in their heads, and that's Alicia. That oh, woman yeah. has a command of her, <laughs> her worlds, I tell you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And do you remember from Earthsea, the other time that we've seen a woman who can presumably look a dragon in the eye. I do not. Going all the way back to the first book when Ged is visiting his friend and his friend's sister has an unusual ornament on her wrist. Ooh, this mm. is a deep cut. So this is um, the boat maker? No, it's his fellow mage. Oh, uh, Vetch. Right, Vetch is- his sister Yarrow. Ve- right, who there was definitely some- some inner tension there between Ged and, and Yarrow. She has a dragon as a bracelet. Oh, didn't she have a, a little, a little mini dragon? That's right. Um, a bat, like a basilisk or was it, mm, it was, she, did called they a had a, she called it a dragon. Okay. The, was it on that Island that they had some sort of small lizard or something? They had small dragons on that Island. Right. And, right. And the women who wear them as charms and Ged had never seen anything like this before and commented on it. And Le Guin said that remembering that woman wearing the dragon on her wrist was a very important seed okay. for her beginning to think about how women might interact with dragons, mm-hmm. particularly a woman who had once been a priestess and a woman who knew some of the language of the old speech and right. uh, who was not afraid of the powers of dark because she had lived with them for so long. Mm. Boy. Well, I think I'm, I don't know. I don't, is there much more to say? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there is, but I feel like I'm 
I, I kind of want to seed something for the next time because okay, I, I, I don't it. think there's enough to talk about here with it yet, but I think it's coming, um, which is just that. Um, what's his name? Ged, you know, the guy who we've been talking about for four books. <laughs> and he's been cut off from his magic source. Right. And it reminds me so much of the Wheel of Time world, people getting stilled or gentled mm-hmm. and how they just kind of lose the will to live because they're so used to having access to magic. Mm-hmm. to having access to this this pure power. And I wonder how Le Guin will approach that compared to Robert Jordan. Yes, stay tuned. And I've been thinking about that too, John, um, in reading the first book, the whole gentled thing. And wow, I went straight to Iron John and Robert Bly. Yeah. Because that's a major part of his thesis. And I was fascinated to find out that those two books came out in the same year, and then Fire in the Belly was the following year. Yeah, that's super interesting. It's definitely a zeitgeist. People are really grappling with this and using the language of, of myth and fantasy and fairy tale mm-hmm. to do it. But in doing it, revealing, um, you know, their underpinnings, their 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 particular views, and then getting responses back. Um you know, from the other gender, so-called, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fact that in, in Iron John, the, the child had to steal the key from underneath his mother's pillow. And, you know, it had to be men going off alone with men. Now I am not in any way, shape or form against men's groups. I think they're fabulous. I think I wish they had started sooner. Um, but the notion that the only way to be a real man was to avoid the company of women because it was weakening. There was nothing new in that. <laughs> right. You know, we see right. that exact same tired trope in the first three books of the Earthsea series, and it will become explicit in this next section of, of Tahanu. I mean, we also see it in the life of J.R.R. Tolkien, right? He's got his, oh, sure. he's got his men's clubs. And he uh, doesn't. Mm-hmm. He, he honestly seemed like he didn't spend a lot of time at home. Well, he spent time at home, but it was often time after everybody else was in bed. Right. Well, that's what um, I mean. You know. Or he spent time at home. You know, having uh, tutorials and and. But he he worked in the garden. He and Edith had conversations. Um, you know, the kids were out of the house fairly early on. Um, if we're looking at the time periods when he began to write his, his legend is, you know, Hobbit Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and so forth. But yeah, he gave more lectures than anyone else. Um, unnecessarily <laughs> far more than far more than, than were required by the college. Um, right. But now we are digressing. <laughs> we sure are. And, and what else are we going to do here? What else are we going to do? All right. Well, then I think it's time we head into listener feedback quickly. But first, let's take a break. And we're back. We've got one piece of feedback today. A reminder, you can send feedback to book at the or you can go to our website, thelorehounds.com, and submit a contact form entry or voicemail. Brian8063, lore master and friend of the pod, frequent contributor, writes in and says, Hi, John, Marilyn, and David. 
This was an amazing book, full stop. Thank you for leading us through this journey of stories. So I guess Brian finished the book. I skimmed the email, and I don't think that there are any spoilers <laughs> going forward. Um, so I will read it anyway. Marilyn, you prepared us for one, the huge plot point about women's role in fantasy and magic. One of my favorite young adult fantasy series is The Last Apprentice by Joseph Delany. It's the story of a boy, then man, who learns to be a spook, a.k.a. monster hunter, who <laughs> fights dark forces, including witches. Women fit the usual trope of witches being evil th- beings, although he tries to develop a couple of witches into more complex characters. Anyway, I love how Tehanu examines her role as a woman in this universe. What is the source of her power? Is it to be a mage? Nope. A mother and wife? Yes. Do housework? I feel shame. Men give women power. This is a good quote, but Geddon Ogian had lived there, bachelors without women. Everywhere Ged had lived, it was without women, so he did the women's work and thought nothing about it. It would be a pity, she thought, if he did think about it. Uh, if he started fearing that his dignity hung by a dishcloth, which we, we mentioned before, so we've already kind of broken this one down. Uh, yet she knows there is more here. She was a priestess. Theru has great potential. She should be a mage. If you haven't already, could you explore this idea of freedom as it relates to power? This seems crucial to our understanding. Thanks again, Brian8063. I've heard there's a treatise already written on this uh, by <laughs> Marilyn Arpaquila, a resident scholar. Well, bullet points at any rate, so hopefully I won't go on until everybody is <laughs> hoping that I will stop. Hey, like, listen, we're really short for a uh, for an Earthsea pod, so we are. Uh, you got we time. You got time. We definitely are. Well, um, it's a lovely question, and thank you for sending it in. It's also one of the most important themes for Ursula in this in this book. So you're you're definitely spot on when, when you're identifying it as such. I think to start off with, I'd like to talk about there's a difference between power over, power with, and empowerment. Power over is what we usually think of when we think of power, you know, the ability to dominate or control or give orders and have them obeyed. Power with is what you have when you work with other people. So it's a shared power. It's a communal power. And I think the stereotype is that women do this more often than men. I don't know if that's true. I tend to think not, but it's certainly, as I say, the stereotype is kind of out there. Empowerment is the power that you have within. And to be empowered is to recognize it and to enact it. So it seems like freedom and power would have to go together. And yet, as soon as you choose power over, you're no longer free. Because your power depends on someone else's weakness. And that is a quote from something that we'll be reading soon. Your success depends upon the behaviors of others, which you may coerce, but ultimately you cannot control. So there's a constant struggle and focus to maintain your power over and to be sure that it's recognized and and respected or, or whatever. And when I wrote that letter to Ursula, I, I talked about Tadar and her choices the fact that she chose to leave the structure of mages and so forth and to choose her own life. 
And she responded to me, quote, what you wrote about Tanar and her choice and her vulnerability touched me very much. Some of my dearest friends and mentors, such as Vonda McIntyre, do see her choice as, quote, too feminine, close quote, as a relinquishment of power or leaving the action to men. And here I'm leaving out a couple of sentences which don't happen until the next section that we're going to read, so I don't want to spoil. Ursula goes on, what I see is that the violent solution remains the man's solution. What Tanar's solution is remains mysterious or unrecognizable, as you say, close quote. So we are talking about a new approach to power, um, recognizing other kinds of power than the one that has been dominant for so long. And these next quotes from Ursula come from Ursi Revisioned. When she first came to Gaunt, Tanar lived as a student with a very wise mage, Ogian. Wouldn't he have taught her the uses of power? Well, we don't know if he would or not, because she refused. She quit grad school, as I pointed out, so did Ursula. She went off to be a nobody, a wife and mother, as did Ursula. And now as an aging widow, not even allowed to own her farm, she's a sub-nobody. Was this a sacrifice? If so, what for? Ged's bargain seems clearer. In the third book, he sacrifices his power, spending it to defeat a mortal enemy. He triumphs, but at the cost of his heroic persona. As Archmage, he is dead. And in Tahana, we find him weak, ill, depressed, forced to hide from enemies. Readers who want him to be the alpha male are dismayed. They're dubious of a strength that doesn't involve contests and conquests and bossing people around. Apparently, it was the bossing around that Tanar refused when she stopped studying with Ogian. Maybe Ogian, a maverick mage, would have shared his knowledge with her. But even if the wizardly hierarchy had accepted her, which seems doubtful, she evidently didn't want their kind of power. She wanted freedom. She doesn't approve of sacrifice. Quote, my soul can't live in that narrow place. This for that, tooth for tooth, death for life. There is a freedom beyond that. Beyond payment, retribution, redemption. Beyond all the bargains and the balances. There is freedom. And she didn't do any dying to get it. All her former selves are alive in her. The child Tanar, the girl priestess Arha, who th still thinks in Kargish, and Goha, the farmer wife, mother of two children. Tanar is whole, but not single. She is not pure. The sacrificial image of dying to be reborn is not appropriate to her. Just the opposite. She has been born. She has been giving birth to her children and her new selves. She is not reborn, but reburying. The word seems strange. It takes an effort to think not of rebirth, but reburying actively in the maternal mode. To think not as the apple, but as the apple tree. And there's more, but we'll have to wait until after we've read the rest of the book. <laughs> We've got plenty to go. I don't even know how many chapters are in this, but I'm assuming it's a lot. 14. Okay. We don't have as many as I thought we did. Well, um, I hope that answered your question, Brian. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> um, because it had a lot of juicy nuggets in there. And thank you, Marilyn, for gathering the sources as you always do. My pleasure. I guess it's time for us to wrap things up here. Uh, we have a few show notes that we want to do if we want to talk about our affiliates quickly. Uh, we have 
Properly Howard movie review. We've just announced a collaboration with them. We're going to be covering Severance with them. So they're covering season one alone and we will cover season two with them. Uh, that feed will be linked in the show notes as well as the Properly Howard main feed where they're talking about remakes of movies. They're, I uh, think oh, they, oh, did they wrap up their season? They did wrap up their season. Okay. They dropped their last one, The Sorcerer from uh, 1977. Uh, but I was going to say with the severance uh, feed too, I think we're going to cross post the a teaser episode. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. that way you can uh, take a listen and then hopefully uh, jump over there and subscribe to that feed so that it's uh, all ready to go once we start releasing the season one episodes. So, Right. Yeah. All right. So very cool. That should be on our feed either before or after this, but so just keep an eye on our feed um, and make sure you subscribe to that feed because we're not going to be posting our severance coverage on this feed. That's right. This is only going to be on the severance feed That's just right. because it works with, you know, ad revenue and all that jazz, just stuff you don't need to worry about. Just subscribe to the feed. Yeah. Anyway, um, Alicia, I'm going to be talking with her tomorrow morning um, about the fall of the house of Usher, Fun. which is the new Mike Flanagan Netflix series. It's Have really, you- really good. Are you been enjoying it? It's amazing. It, I yeah. think it's his best work yet. I okay. think it's his magnum opus so far. I got through episode two, and I was like, episode two is a little bit of a head scratcher, but um, <laughs> well, well, it's I so was, good. It's just uh, packed with. First of all, Poe references all over the place, obviously. Right, but right. it's got so much metaphor. It's just beautifully written. The dialogue is amazing. The visuals are amazing. It does not rely on jump scares, which is something I always appreciate mm. in horror. Mm. It's uh, it's more about what I like about Mike Flanagan is he he dissects a human emotion with horror as his palate, rather mm. than doing horror for horror's sake. Interesting. He uses it as a tool to examine a human emotion. Okay. Yeah, I noticed in the episode one there were a couple of times where I was expecting something to happen. Because it, something was happening in a background mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, my God, it's about to happen. And then it doesn't happen. It all happens very quickly as mm-hmm. it goes. <laughs> but it wasn't um, a jump scare. I was expecting the jump yeah, scare, yeah, yeah. right? And yeah. it didn't happen. And and then I'm like, oh, this is interesting. This yeah, is he a, doesn't do jump know. scares much. He does yeah. it sometimes. He mostly sure. hides things in the background, though. Right. So. Yeah, for if sure. If you're looking for something spooky, uh, that's a really great show. It's on Netflix. You can binge it all now. And I and think that'll be Alicia, out sometime soon. And Alicia and Anthony on his Electric Boogaloo podcast, they're going to have a conversation about yeah, yeah. Uh, George R. R. Martin and, and how he was influenced by Poe. And okay. so they're going to get hmm. into the interesting stuff of that. Alicia's got a bunch of stuff cooking too. She's, yeah. they had to do, she had to make some changes to the Wool Shift Dust Book Club. Um, we lost a member of our community. Um, and, uh, so she's sort of gone through that process and then, um, now getting started again. So those are going to start rolling and, uh, Abby is going to be joining her and Abby's a a great Mm. person, been very active on, on the dead bird, uh, social media platform and (laughs) other places. And so they're going to start doing beacon 21, 23. Uh, 23, thank you, <laughs> two off, uh, which is another Hugh Howey book that's going to be on the MGM Plus streaming platform, I think. Stop so- making them. We're, we have enough. <laughs> we need bundles now. Take we us back enough. to cable. We got, we got to go the other direction. I know. I enjoy Abby's uh, feedback posts. Yeah. Yes. I think, I think I've been listening to the one. I think it's on Loki that she's been. Yes. She's been and, very yeah. faithful on Loki. So that's been great. Yeah. So, and you know, for, I mean, she just come from the fandom and yeah. uh, her and, and Alicia have hit it off. So that's really exciting that, uh, 
we get to hear some more voices. And just to add, well, Alicia and I will be talking about the fall of the House of Usher here. She's also doing a, a broader look at it with um, a lot of focus on the writings of Poe, of Edgar right. Allan Poe, uh, on her feed. We'll shift us. So you can find her feed in the show notes as well, where you yeah. can get all her stuff. Does she sleep? Does Alicia I, sleep? She doesn't. She stays up till like four in the morning talking to us about Star Wars. Yeah. Frankie Moses. It's crazy. It's it's amazing. We are very lucky to have her. So yes, um, as far as us, we we are kind of back cooking. It feels like we're, things are moving again. Uh, you're doing Loki, David, yep. with Alicia and Jean every yep. week. It's fun. Um, you and I right now are doing Earthsea as we speak. Um, similarly, a- stories is coming back this month. It is. Yay. We also have a, a one shot on the creator, uh, right, right. Jean and Alicia. That's in the can. I just got to edit it now. Uh, okay. I have to. Very I have cool. to sleep in between work and, and family I know, life. I know. And it's then tough. editing it. So, uh, but that'll be out before long, before the end of the month for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we we've got, got stuff coming. The second breakfast. second breakfast for our Patreon subscribers. We're going to be talking about The Witch, which is a very interesting movie. I just watched it the other day. It's so and good. Yeah, it was. That's really good. another one that's like deep in using using horror as a way to explore mm-hmm. um, all these. All it was these not what emotions. I expected. It was not what I was expecting. A more traditional horror story, just set. Actually, in the, the the witch is very much in line with the fall of the House of Usher thematically. Mm, yeah, yeah, interesting. Mm. That's true. So, and do you not have an interesting interview coming down the pike? We do. Thank we you for do. reminding us about that. Bear McCreary noted. <laughs> composer and musician did the um theme songs and and uh music for foundation and i gotta ask him his hair routine too it looks great it it looks amazing (laughs) and yeah he's done a a bunch of video games and he's got a really prolific Mm -hmm. career and i think he's really on a big upswing right now he came into oxen by zoom and and did a q a and he he just you know he's like just push a button and he'll just talk. Wow. That's great. <laughs> it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Cool. I'm cool. super excited to talk to him. I mean, I, I have a music background. I love picking mm-hmm. people's brain about it. And uh, yeah. he's, he's a guy who's just so prolific. I can't believe he said yes. Yeah. He's so generous that way. Yeah. He really is. But he enjoys what he's doing and he enjoys talking about it with people and, you know, sharing the enthusiasm of his own enthusiasm and also the enthusiasm it's of kind the of yeah. people we but want to talk to. That talking, I can't wait to hear him talk again about the device that they invented for yes. the music for the opening sequence of Foundation. Yeah. He wanted it to be so precise that it couldn't be human instruments because it was a reflection of the prime um, radiant. The prime radiant. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about that too. Very cool. That's super cool. All right. Well, that's so, about it for us. We need to talk about our Patreon lore masters. David, can you give yes. us some shout outs? I do. And before I do the shout outs, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. So yeah, Patreon did a big update on their systems and there's a way that you can follow us now quite easily. So you can see the kinds of posts that we've got going out. We also have a free seven day trial. So if you want to check us out and, and listen to stuff, you can do it that way. And we have annual memberships. So if it works for your budget, makes things easier, you know, you can uh, subscribe that way. And subscribing to Patreon really is the, the best way since uh, ad revenues are, are so fickle. Anyway, we have our top tier Patreon subscribers, also known as our lore masters. And we like to give them a shout out for every podcast. And they are Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., SC, 
Peter O H, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Duve seventy one, Brian eighty sixty three, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Andra B, Kwong Yu, Laura G, Deadeye Jedi Bob, Nathan T, Alex V, Aaron T, Sub Zero. <sighs> And Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! That list has gotten really long, and we want to thank all of you and all of our Patreon supporters. It really helps us, keeps us in the software, keeps us all on the platforms that we need, helps us take care of our uh, co-hosts and contributors. So we really appreciate uh, all the support. And it just gives us warm fuzzies to know. You're that all such nice people. And we like exactly. talking to you. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, I think until next month, what what's our Te Hanu? What's the next bank of chapters? Seven or the Hanu cha- experts? I, I don't know. <laughs> to be determined. To be determined. Okay. All right. We'll we'll tweet about it. We'll, yes. we'll we'll dead bird about it, as you say, David. Yeah. And or and and then also, yeah, we'll we'll make mention of it in uh, future podcasts. Yeah, yeah as we'll, we'll talk about so it. Keep listening. So, all right. Thanks, Marilyn. Thanks, John. Thank you, gentlemen. See you later. Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by the Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash the Lorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.